And uh, yesterday I got to share on Zoom as well with the C.S. Lewis Society of Seattle. Uh, They asked me to speak and I gave a message and I called it, How Shall We Then Live? And I thought that uh, that that would be a a pretty good message for our people as well as for uh, all Christians. And um, so uh, so again, I titled the message, How Shall We Then Live? And if you open up to Romans chapter one. Romans chapter one, uh, we're going to look at verses 18 through 32. And here we're going to see um, kind of where we're at, how we got to where we're at, what's going on today, and then what is our response uh, going to be. And um, so in Romans 1, 18 to 32, I, I titled this, uh, this portion here, point number one, man's flight from God. So starting at verse 18 of Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, to exchange the truth of God for the lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions for even the woman, even their woman exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving their natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And even as they, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. So now uh, in this passage, we see with man's flight from God, even though the invisible God has proven to us that he exists through his visible creation, even though we don't see the invisible God, we see the visible work of his hands, 
So we know that he exists. Yet what do we do? But we suppress that truth. So stage number one in the decay of a culture is the rejection of the creator God. Then when you reject the truth, you have to speculate and try to come up with an alternative. And so um, number one, rejection of the creator God. Number two in the stages of decay of a culture is foolish speculation. Foolish speculation. We profess to be wise, but become fools. We engage in idolatry and worship false gods. Um, And then widespread sexual immorality and wickedness. And then the final stage in the decay of a culture is active acceptance and promotion of evil. That's where we're at today. You can call that the new tolerance. You can call that political correctness. You can call it even in our culture, um, cultural Marxism or neo-Marxism. It's uh, it's when good and evil are exchanged. You know, Isaiah 520 said, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. And so man's flight from God, we see this in our culture. We, our culture has rejected the creator God. Um, you know, to be saved as individuals, it's by God's grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus alone. But for the salvation and the sustaining of a culture, of a civilization, there has to at least be respect for the creator God and a respect for his laws. And once you start rejecting the moral laws of that creator God, your days are numbered. And, um, and that's what's happened here. We've rejected the creator God. We've engaged in foolish speculation and idolatry and widespread sexual immorality and wickedness. And now we have the widespread acceptance and promotion uh, of evil. I'm going to read to you from my 2003 book, um, God, Government, and the Road to Tyranny. I wrote that in 2003, but the passage that I'm going to be reading from, the passage is actually uh, a passage um, from a paper that I wrote, The Death of Man, The Coming Death of Western Civilization. I believe it was at Multnomah, a regional meeting of the Evangelical Theological Society, and I presented the paper in 1998. And uh, But C.S. Lewis, and when he wrote his book, The Abolition of Man, which I I think should be almost required reading for all Christians. C.S. Lewis's work, The Abolition of Man, that was written in the 1940s, and yet he saw what was coming down. So we've entered into the stages of decay in a culture, and uh, we've fled from God. We're now defining good as evil and evil as good. And uh, let me read this passage Uh, from pages 92 to 94 in my book, God, Government, the Road to Tyranny. And this is written again, 2003, based on an article that was written in 1998. The 19th century brought the death of God to Western culture. It didn't mean that God died, but it meant that Christianity was no longer the dominant worldview of the leadership of Western civilizations. That's what the death of God means. So the 19th century brought brought the death of God to Western culture. The 20th century brought the death of truth and morality to Western culture. So because we realized we rejected God, 
then it took a while for us to get consistent and reject God's truth and God's morality. And that was the 20th century. Now, two 20th century thinkers, C.S. Lewis and Francis Schaeffer, argued that the death of man will follow unless, of course, man repents. So what I'm saying is the 19th century with Darwinian evolution and modernistic thought brought about the death of God in Western civilization. We abandoned God. 20th century brought the death of truth and the, the death of morality. And now the 21st century in which we live right now is going to bring about uh, the death of man. And that's what C.S. Lewis called the abolition of man. So uh, two 20th century Christian thinkers, C.S. Lewis and Francis Schaeffer argued that the death of man will follow unless, of course, man repents. And if we have repentance, we could turn this around by the grace of God. But, you know, uh, we want revival. Everybody wants revival. Nobody wants to repent. I'm not just talking about the world. I'm talking about the church as well. If uh, if we repent, we'll have revival. Um, but that doesn't look like what's going to happen there. But God will determine whether or not our culture falls. I kind of agree with Billy Graham, what he said in the 1970s, that if God doesn't judge America, he owes um, Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. And um, so... Uh, my quote from God, Government, and the Road to Tyranny goes on. Lewis, C.S. Lewis, in his prophetic work, The Abolition of Man, critiqued an English textbook written in the 1940s, which was designed for school children. Lewis found that more than English was being taught in this book for the author's rejected objective truth and traditional values and proclaimed a type of moral relativism. Moral relativism is the idea that there are no universal, absolute moral laws. What's right for you is right for you. doesn't have to be right for me and vice versa. Lewis expressed concern for two reasons. First, children who read this textbook would be easy prey for, to its false teachings. Second, this would lead to a culture built on moral relativism and the rejection of ob objective truth something that according to Lewis has not existed in the history of mankind. Lewis not only refuted the fallacious views of the authors, but also predicted the future consequences of this type of education. He argued that teaching of this sort would produce a race of men without chest. By this, he meant men without consciences. According to Lewis, this would mean an entirely new species of man and the abolition of man. I think Lewis was being, you know, was using hyperbole there, conscious exaggeration. He was just basically saying man's going to be treated as less than fully human, and man is going to think in ways that are kind of subhuman. Instead of thinking of right and wrong and of thinking of our dependence upon God, uh, man is going to be programmed uh, to think in the way that the uh, dictators want them to think. Lewis argued that the practical result of such education would be the destruction of the society which accepts it. The rejection of all values leaves man free to recreate himself and his values. So if you reject God's values, God's moral values, and you reject God, you get to recreate yourself. This is why we have men who now identify as, as women and women who as, identify as men. Um, we, if there's no God, we're free to recreate ourselves, and that's what's going on um, 
right now. When this power is placed into the hands of those who rule, their subjects will be totally at their mercy. Lewis also saw in this rejection of traditional values a new purpose for science. In a sense, science is like magic in that both science and magic represent man's attempted conquest of nature. However, science will become an instrument through which uh, a few hundreds of men will rule billions of men. For in man's conquest of nature, human nature will be the last aspect of nature to surrender to man. Science will be used by future rulers to suppress the freedoms of the masses. We're seeing that today where if you agree with this large group of scientists who say that the shutdowns aren't working and the shutdowns are causing more problems uh, than help, you're called anti-science and anti-scientific. And, um, and so right now, science is being, you know, you, can, you give me 100 scientists and I can tell you what their stance will be about the shutdowns and the virus and the vaccines based on how they vote. So scientists are humans and most humans are very political. And, uh, but right now science is being used by future rulers to suppress the freedoms of the masses. C.S. Lewis said this back in the forties. Okay. Um, Lewis refers to the future rulers as the man molders of the new age or the conditioners. Keep in mind, this was long decades before we even came up with the, the, the phrase, the new age movement. It will be the job of the conditioners to produce the rules, not, not to obey the rules. So they're, they're going to consider themselves above the rules. It's like we see leaders now today saying that you should not go to restaurants. And then a video pops up on social media of the, that same politician, that governor or mayor or whatever, or senator or congressman showing up in a restaurant not wearing a mask, but telling everybody else you can't do it. So the rules don't apply to them. They consider themselves above the rules. Now, if you acknowledge God above government and God above the laws, then even your leaders must subject themselves to the rules and the laws. But these people believe that they're above the laws. Um, I remember the Chicago mayor was for defunding the police and calling for defunding of the police and cutting back on the police until the protesters surrounded her mansion. Then uh, she spent over $100,000 of taxpayers' money to send the police in full force to protect her family. And when she was called into question on that, she said that um, I'll never apologize for protecting my family. Well, the fact of the matter is she protected the, her family with taxpayers' money while refusing to allow the taxpayers to protect their families through taxpayers' money by having the police force there. Instead, she wanted to defund the police. So we see this day now where the conditioners create the rules, but they don't obey the rules. They're above the rules. The conditioners will boldly create the laws the conditioned must obey. The role of education will become the production of artificial values, which will serve the purposes of the conditioners. So you, you, what you have is the laws, science. So the laws 
science and education will not be, you know, the laws will not be set up to punish evil and protect good. Uh, the science will not be trying to find truth um, and ways to help people with their health issues. And um, education will not be set up to teach children truth. All three of them are going to be set up um, to protect those in positions of power. And, uh, and this is what we're seeing uh, right now. And, um, you know, when I read this paper in 1998, I was, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, theologians, the late Stanley Grenz butt heads with me, and there's a lot of debate going on. Some guys, some of J.P. Moreland out of Biola, some of his guys stood up and defended me, but it was very controversial. When I reshared the paper in 2015, uh, some guys were actually calling me a prophet, and I reminded them, I'm just repeating what C.S. Lewis said in the 1940s and what Francis Schaeffer said in the 1970s. So uh, to me, it's fairly clear what's coming down. You know, ideas have consequences. And if we turn our backs on God, it's going to bring up horrible consequences. And that's what we're seeing today. So the role of education will become the production of artificial values, which will serve the purposes of the conditioners. Instead of educating children, They'll be indoctrinated in political correctness to protect uh, the power of the political leaders. Uh, the conditioners, through their Nietzschean will to power uh, and motivated by the thirst to satisfy their own desires, will create their own new values and enforce these values on the masses. According to Lewis, the rejection of traditional values and objective truth will lead to the same mentality in future rulers as that of the Nazi rulers of Germany. Traditional values will be replaced by the arbitrary wills of the few who rule over the billions, and this will abolish man and bring about the world of post-humanity. And, um, and so we're, we're seeing this come down now. And there have been you know, a few voices out there, myself in the late 80s and the 90s, but Francis Schaeffer before me in the 1970s, C.S. Lewis going uh, back to the 1940s, that if we're going to reject God and his morality and his truth, what's going to fill the vacuum is going to be very, very uh, dangerous. And um, so, um, so what we have here is man's flight from God we're exchanging good and evil. Isaiah said, what are those who call evil good and good evil? And then, um, and, and so what we're finding is that Christians, we're not going to, we're, we're going to increasingly not fit in. We're all of a sudden, we're the bad guys. We're the bigots. We're the intolerant ones. We're the racist. Now, we should not be surprised by this. The freedom of religion and freedom of speech that we have enjoyed in this country. That's the exception rather than the rule. The rule for Christians for the past 2000 years have been they've been imprisoned, beaten, they lose their jobs, they get executed. And so we're kind of returning to a state of normalcy. This is why Jesus said in John 15, 18, if you find that the world hates you, Know that it hated me before it hated you. 
So don't take it personal when the Lord hates you. Um, just recognize if they hate Jesus and you live for Jesus, they're going to hate you. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 9, that in the end times, we will be hated because of Jesus in all nations. You know, if you're if you're a, an obnoxious person and you treat people like trash and they don't like you, don't blame Jesus for that one. OK, but if you speak the truth in love and you share in the gospel message and they hate you, well, hey, it comes with the turf. But we're just being persecuted for the cause of righteousness. But Peter makes it very clear in his letters. You deserve no sympathy if you're suffering for wrongdoing. But if you're suffering for the cause of the gospel, for what is good and what is true, um, then there will be rewards for that persecution. Uh, Paul tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, that everyone who desires to live uh, a righteous life will be persecuted. He didn't say might be persecuted. He said will be persecuted. Now, what's happening in America is that our persecution has been nothing but a little bit of ridicule. People make fun of us. They roll their eyes when they find out we're a Christian. Um, well, those days are gone. Our persecution is now going to move up to another level. Right now, we're getting close to the um, type of persecution that the readers of the book of Hebrews experienced. They were not being persecuted to the point of shedding of blood, but they were losing their jobs and their property. And because of that, they were Jews who embraced Jesus as their Messiah, and they were thinking of returning uh, to Judaism, the old form, the animal sacrifices, and departing from Christian fellowship. Well, um, you know, uh, that's the kind of persecution we're getting now. So we've had people who have lost their businesses and lost their jobs because they did not want to, you know, cater a gay wedding or uh, pastors with, with this, is this Equality Act passes, a pastor who refuses to perform a wedding for uh, homosexuals uh, would, uh, would basically be in violation of the law. So I think eventually our churches are going to have to go underground. But what we have is uh, Christians increasingly not fitting in. Our society used to be based on Christian principles. Now we're at the point where uh, we're the bad guys. And, um, and so this, this widespread acceptance and promotion of evil, Okay, looks like I was gone for a few minutes. Am I back on now? Yes. Okay. Um, yeah, it looks like I had the uh, free 30-minute thing or something. It bumped me off. So, um, but, uh, but basically, this widespread acceptance and promotion of evil, uh, what I call that 
Uh, you know, it's political correctness, the new tolerance, but it's also the deification of the state. I see the deification of the state turning the state into God as equivalent with the death of man. You know, God instituted human government to serve man and protect his God-given rights. Uh, when the government plays God and expects us to worship the government, um, then the state is deifying itself and demanding worship. And because of this, uh, Christians will increasingly not fit in. And so what I've got are seven points um, of how we should respond to this. You know, Francis Schaeffer wrote that book, How Shall We Then Live? Well, this is how we should, should now live. And uh, the first thing is, if you look at the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, Matthew chapter 5, Verses 9 to 12. And Jesus says this, Matthew 5, 9 to 12. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So we're not out there starting violence. We have the right to defend ourselves and defend our family. But uh, in most cases, we turn the other cheek and we try to make peace. But Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And, um, and so here we see that Jesus is telling us what his half-brother James later on told us, and that is we are to rejoice in our suffering. And so that goes against uh, our own common sense, uh, the idea that, um, um, you know, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, you know, that Jesus, God gave that to the government to bring his wrath on the evildoer. With individual Christians, he tells us to turn the other cheek. So when we get persecuted, we should rejoice in our suffering. One of the reasons why we rejoice in our suffering and our, our response here is number two is John chapter 16 and verse 33. Jesus said this. These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer I have overcome the world. And um, so we can rejoice in our suffering. That's number one in our response, because number two, we know that through Jesus, we have overcome. Okay. So if someday a prison guard in a reindoctrination camp has got you by the arm and is leading you to your execution, don't feel sorry for yourself. You're an overcomer. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Okay. Jesus will come back and make things right on the planet Earth. Don't feel sorry for yourself. Feel sorry um, for that guy who's leading you uh, to your execution. Okay. Um, we have overcome. And um, you know what did Mr. T used to say? Pity the fool. And we read from a passage in Romans 1 where the, those who reject God profess to be wise, but become fools. And we need to feel sorry 
for the, the fools, those who have rejected Christ. And um, don't feel sorry for yourself. Even when we get persecuted, rejoice in our suffering and know that through Jesus, we have overcome. A look at Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20. Paul says this. For our citizenship is in heaven. From which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So ultimately, we're not really citizens of of America. I mean, we have the rights of citizens here and we should exercise our political say for the good of others, turn the other cheek when it applies to us, but stand up for the rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for others. Um, but really understand that, hey, you know, if America collapses and it sure looks like she's gonna, we got leaders that have uh, closer allegiance to China and the United Nations and the World Economic Forum than they have to the American people. In fact, I think that's why former President Trump caught so much flack, not because he was obnoxious. You know, you get 100 politicians in a room, 95 of them are obnoxious. Um, and so the real reason why he was so hated was he was not an internationalist. He was not a globalist. He actually was going to bat for the American people. And um, but in the end, recognize that even uh, if America collapses, we're not citizens of this world. Um, instead, uh, we're citizens of heaven. And that kingdom cannot be shaken. You know, Hebrews 12, 26 to 29. We don't have time to look it up. But in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 26 to 29, the author of Hebrews is telling his readers that God shook the earth once at Mount Sinai when God appeared to Moses and gave him the Ten Commandments. And he shook the earth once before and he can shake the earth again. He will shake the earth again. And he's going to shake all the kingdoms that can be shaken. But the one kingdom that cannot be shaken is the kingdom of God. And so we are citizens um, of God's kingdom we are citizens of heaven, and that is the only kingdom that cannot be shaken. You know, um, two sides of this coin, the Bible promises that if, if we trust in Jesus for salvation and we depend on him and follow him, God promises to meet all our needs. That's one side of the coin. But the other side of the coin is very sobering because when you study the scriptures closely, what you realize in the end, all we need is Jesus. So everything that we have, and I'm not just talking about our house and our cars and our property. Um, I'm even talking about our family and our spouses. Everything that we have can be taken from us. Except Jesus. No one can take uh, Jesus from us. So we're not citizens of this world. Uh, we're citizens of God's kingdom and God's kingdom cannot be shaken. Uh, we don't have time to turn there, but in 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, Peter refers to us as aliens. He's letting us know we're just passing through. We are just passing through this planet Earth, okay? And this is convicting for me because I thought, you know, 
if uh, the government decided to imprison all Christians and I had to flee, the first thought that would come to my mind, you know, after getting my wife, the very first thought that would come to my mind would be, how many of my books can I take with me? Okay. And so we, we get, we even pastors, we get too comfortable um, with all the things of this world, especially with the prosperity we have here in, uh, in America. We got to realize, look, we brought nothing into the world. We can take nothing out with us. And we just got to recognize we're, we're aliens. We're just passing through. We belong to the kingdom of God. And even if they, now I'm hoping and praying, you know, we can manage to take a Bible with us with me. I need a Bible plus 3.0 reading glasses. And uh, if I got in prison for preaching the gospel, that'd be the, uh, some of the first things I'd ask for. Can I have a Bible and, 3.0 reading glasses and i it's not that easy to get that stuff um while in prison uh, but the fact of the matter is uh, we're aliens we're just passing through we're citizens of heaven we're not citizens of earth we're citizens of god's kingdom and that's the only kingdom that cannot be shaken so we rejoice in our suffering we know that through jesus we have overcome we must recognize we're citizens, not citizens of this world. We're citizens of heaven. We're aliens. We're just passing through. And then number five, we must defend the faith with gentleness and reverence. First Peter, and we'll turn there. First Peter chapter three and verse 15. This is where the word apologetics comes from. First Peter chapter three. And verse 15, but sanctify the Lord God means set apart, set apart the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense. That's apologia in the Greek, apologetics. Always be willing to give a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Some translations read with uh, gentleness and reverence or gentleness and respect. Okay. Paul mentions the same thing in Colossians. Paul's letter to the Colossians chapter four, verses five and six Colossians chapter four, verses five and six. Paul says this walk in wisdom toward those who are outside. Those who are outside the church, non-believers. Walk in wisdom towards those who are outside, redeeming the time, making the most of the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. And so we must defend the faith, yet with grace, graciousness, gentleness, and respect. Okay? This is what Paul means when in Ephesians 4.15 he says we must speak the truth in love. Okay. If you're not going to speak the truth in love, then don't speak the truth at all because you're just going to push people away. Okay. And um, uh, so we've got to speak the truth in love. Um, a lot of people love to speak in love, but they want to tell people whatever they want to hear. And there's a lot of preachers that'll preach and just try to make people feel good. They're trying to preach in love without truth. No, 
you got to speak the truth in love. You're not loving people if you're telling them lies. Okay. Um, and if you speak the truth, but it's not in love, you're just going to push people away. So we must defend the faith with gentleness and respect. That's point number five. Number six, um, we must speak the truth in love. And then we must love our enemies and pray for them. Point number seven. Look at Matthew chapter five. Matthew chapter five. Verses 43 to 48, Matthew 5, verses 43 to 48. In the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbors and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore, you shall be perfect. You shall be complete in your love, just as your heavenly father is perfect. And so what Jesus is telling us is that we're if we just love our friends, we're not doing any better than an unsaved guy or gal in the world is doing. And so we must love our enemies and pray for them. God loves all mankind. We need to love all mankind as well. And then I, I would have one more point. I think I said seven originally, but there's actually eight points here. Um, look at Romans 116. Paul's letter to the Romans. Chapter one and verse 16. And Paul says this, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. So Paul says, look, I'm not ashamed of the good news of salvation through Jesus because it has the power to save. I think a lot of us are ashamed. And, it, and believe me, it, it, it's tough. There, it is tough to share your faith with nonbelievers in a culture where we don't fit in, where we're the bad guys. What I recommend, though, is, you know, um, at the C.S. Lewis Society, somebody brought up Mother Teresa scolding Harvard for abortion. And uh, she also did it to political leaders with I think President Clinton was there and scolded them in a speech. And they just stood there, sat there and took it. Well, what, what happened was she earned the right to be her because she spent decades feeding hungry people. And taking, you know, sheltering the homeless and taking care of sick people. And so we may have to do that in a culture that hates God. We may have to earn the right to be heard. What I'm saying is build relationships with nonbelievers. You could always start out by saying, God bless you. 
what I did, I transitioned from God bless you to God bless, God bless and be safe. And people stop and think, gee, this guy really cares about me being safe because I do, because God's called me to love God with everything I got and love my neighbor as myself. And then, you know, maybe if you never see the person again, you planted a little seed. But if you do see the person again, you can build on that and eventually build a friendship and, um, and, and chip away at those hardened hearts. And so never be ashamed of the gospel. Never be ashamed to suffer for Jesus. Look what Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. He's about to die. He's about to be executed. And in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12, Paul's in prison. He's going to be executed. And he says this. For this reason, I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he, that Jesus, is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. And so if you, like the Apostle Paul, if you know Jesus personally, and you believe in him and trust in him for salvation, you're convinced he's able to guard you until that day he comes for you, um, then you don't have to be ashamed when you suffer. If you committed a crime and then found yourself in prison, yeah, you should be ashamed. Um, but if you get imprisoned for preaching the gospel or lose your job or your property for preaching the gospel or get executed for preaching the gospel, uh, you should never be ashamed to suffer for Jesus. In fact, it's actually a reward. And I'm going to close with, with one other passage here from Mark chapter 8. Gospel of Mark chapter 8. And verse 34. In fact, we'll go from verses 34 to, through 36. Mark 8, verses 34 through 36. When he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? So never be ashamed to suffer for Jesus. If, if we want to follow Jesus, we've got to deny ourselves, deny our own sinful desires, even at times deny our physical needs. And then we take up the cross. The cross is whatever mission God has for you, and it always involves some level of suffering. For Jesus, his cross was a literal cross. He came to earth to die for us. We may be called to die for our faith. So we deny ourselves our own agenda, and we take on the kingdom agenda, the kingdom of God agenda. We take up our cross, and then we follow Jesus in the path of obedience. And so we don't desire to save our lives. Um, we desire to serve Jesus, and that will basically whoever loses life for Jesus' sake will save it. But you want to feel sorry for somebody 
feel sorry for the Bill Gates and the George Soros out there because Jesus says, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? And so if you, you know, you can have the most wealth on the planet Earth, you can own the whole planet, you can rule the world. If you're going to lose your soul, it isn't uh, worth it at all. And, um, and so how shall we then live? Well, because of man's flight from God and the deification of the state, because we call our, our government calls good evil and evil good, and because we Christians will increasingly not fit in, uh, what should our response be? Number one, rejoice in our suffering. We'll be rewarded for our suffering. Rejoice in our suffering. It's an honor to suffer for Jesus. Number two, know that through Jesus, we have overcome. Walk by faith, not by sight. Don't look at your circumstances and, um, and trust in your circumstances. Trust in the Lord who's in control of your circumstances. And know that through Jesus, we have overcome. Number three, remember we are not citizens of this world. We're citizens of heaven, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Number four, recognize that we're aliens. We're just passing through. Don't get too attached to the comforts we find here in America. We're aliens. We're just passing through. Number five, we must defend the faith with gentleness and respect. Number six, we must speak the truth in love. We need to love nonbelievers, even those who persecute us. Number seven, we must love our enemies and pray for them. And number eight, never be ashamed to suffer for the Lord Jesus. Jesus died for us. The least we can do is live for him and then be willing, if need be, to die for him. And so it's my prayer that everyone at Trinity Bible Fellowship will agree with Joshua that when the world demands that we turn our backs on Jesus, uh, we will say, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We'll never be ashamed. Uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the illustration I give there is um, in the eighth grade, you know, we were city kids and they were going to take us raising funds to take us to a dude ranch and uh, with horses and horses are terrifying for city kids. They put us on the horses. It was so high above the ground and all, but to raise funds, we had to do a car wash. We were tired after eight hours of washing cars. We were eighth graders, St. Al's, grammar school in, in uh, Caldwell, New Jersey. And um, we were tired. We were getting ready to pack up everything. And then all of a sudden, this one last car came off in the distance. And everybody started laughing, saying, look at that car. It's so disgusting. It's so dirty. It looks like it's never been washed. And I was laughing with them until I recognized that the car got closer and closer that it was my dad. And... Uh, my dad was the greatest man I ever knew. And um, and I had to make a choice. I could laugh and cave into peer pressure and be ashamed of my dad. Or I could say, no, that's the man who's teaching me how to be a man. That's the man who loves me, the man who feeds me, the man who was even paying for me to go to St. Al's grammar school. And I had to make that choice. I could either be ashamed of my dad and be cool with my friends, or um, I could refuse to be ashamed of my dad. 
And I'll tell you, it was a great thing to see my dad pull up, even while the other kids were were laughing and saying how gross it was to wash his car, to see that my dad came out to support me. And my dad was there. Well, I'm telling you, uh, my dad was a good man. And I could never be ashamed of Joe Fernandez. And, uh, uh, but I'll tell you, Joe Fernandez is nothing next to Jesus. And some of us, you know, are going to be tempted to be ashamed of Jesus. Don't ever, ever, ever be ashamed of Jesus. Be willing to suffer for the cause of the gospel. Jesus died for us. If, if need be, we'll suffer and die for Jesus and for the cause of the gospel, which is the good news of salvation through faith in, uh, in Jesus. Let's, um, let's close with a word of prayer. Father, in Jesus' precious name, we just thank you, Lord, that you're such a good God. But we know that you're a holy and a just God, and you must judge and punish all sin. And we know that we're sinners. We know that all we've earned is the eternal flames of hell, eternal separation from you in the lake of fire. But you're such a good God, such a gracious God, such a merciful God, that you provide salvation for us through your son. You're totally just, so you must judge and punish all sin before it can be forgiven. But I thank you that you chose, you found a way um, to punish sin, to condemn sin without condemning the sinful person. Instead, you condemned Jesus in our place and you punished him instead of punishing us. And Jesus was a substitute sacrifice, the ultimately worthy substitute sacrifice to atone for and cover our sins. So I thank you that you sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. I thank you that you raised him from the dead to conquer death for us. And, um, and so I just pray, Lord, that each and every one of us would accept your grace, your charity, your free gift of salvation through faith in Jesus, that we would not trust in ourselves, but we would trust in your son, Jesus, alone for salvation knowing that there is salvation in no one else. And as we trust in your son, Jesus, for salvation, uh, may we deny ourselves and our own sinful agenda. Uh, may we pick up the cross and live for your son, Jesus, and glorify your son, Jesus, and live for his kingdom, not our own. So may we deny ourselves, pick up the cross, and follow Jesus in the path of obedience. You've given us all a mission from you, and you've empowered us by the indwelling Holy Spirit. And so I pray that the Holy Spirit would lead us and empower us to be all that you called us to be and to prepare us for the, the terrible days that lie ahead as Christians don't fit in with this society, as we're viewed as the bad guys, as intolerant bigots. I just pray, Lord, that you would give us the rock-solid faith to stand for Jesus when it's not popular, to stand for Jesus even when persecution comes. May we never be ashamed of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And may we look forward to the return of the Lord Jesus when he, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, shall reign upon the earth and make things right. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.